If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dad Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. You guys are super awesome. I really appreciate you. Uh, I'm just going to kind of jump into this today. My guest today is Dr. Heather Brandt. She is the director of HPV Cancer Prevention Program and co-associate director for outreach at St. Jude Comprehensive Cancer Center. She's also a member of the Department of Epidemiology and Cancer Control at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So she's here today to talk about uh, the HPV vaccine, vaccines in general, safety, efficacy, why they're so important. We're going to dispel a bunch of rumors and uh, misinformation about vaccines. And we're going to answer questions that uh, parents have asked and and help to guide you in the, the direction of reliable, scientifically sound, uh, medically accurate information should you want to learn more about vaccines and what's best for your family. So uh, Dr. Heather Brandt, is here today to talk about the importance of childhood vaccines. And thank you for, we had some, we're trying out like this new platform and it's been a little bit hiccupy, we'll say for some people as we've been is doing this because it's kind of new, but thank you for, for your patience and taking the time to work through all that stuff and uh, come on a show and help us better understand why vaccines are so important. Thank you for having me. Could you just kind of give us a little bit of information about your background? Like like how long have you been involved with vaccines? 
Yeah, so let me take it back just a little bit further to tell you a little bit about who I am and sort of my positionality with this issue. Uh, I was born and raised in a small rural town in northeastern Iowa, and I was raised by parents who did not raise me to have a small mind, even though I grew up in a small town. And I certainly grew up in that small town running all over with a village that kept tabs on me. And I actually have two younger sisters who I kept tabs on, too. I attended an amazing public school system, and I'm a first-generation college graduate from the University of Iowa, and then I attended the University of South Carolina for uh, my master's and doctoral degree and two graduate certificates, and I joined St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in July 2020 after 16 years on faculty in the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina, and I was most recently associate dean in the graduate school and professor of health promotion, education, and behavior there. And I've been studying HPV in particular or human papillomavirus for more than 20 years. And it was through this connection to HPV that I then started studying vaccines because guess what? We have a vaccine that can prevent six types of cancer, and that's the HPV vaccine that I know I'll have a chance to talk more about. Um, I live in Memphis with my partner, Forrest Alton, who runs our consulting business, 1000 Feathers, which seeks to bridge the divide between vision and strategy to achieve meaningful results. And we have an adorable Cavapoo puppy named Elvis, which is a perfect Memphian name uh, who keeps us entertained and, and certainly filled with a lot of joy. So that's a little bit uh, about me and how I uh, come to this issue. Okay. What do you do um, with St. Jude? Sure. So I serve as the director of the HPV Cancer Prevention Program, which is a new program focused on increasing uptake of HPV vaccination to prevent HPV cancers. And this is a new area for St. Jude. St. Jude, at St. Jude, we do not yet know how to prevent the cancers that afflict the patients that we treat. So uh, we care about kids and we want to make sure that they're protected. And so we want childhood cancer survivors to be protected from second HPV cancers in the future, but also all children to benefit from HPV vaccination as cancer prevention. And in addition, I serve as co-director for outreach in the St. Jude Comprehensive Cancer Center and am a faculty member in epidemiology and cancer control. Like to sum that up, you're like the perfect person to have this conversation with. So this this is this is great. Um, everybody, I think, is familiar with what vaccines are, but there's a lot of things floating around about vaccines. Can you just sort of break down what a vaccine is? Sure. And, and, you know, let's take a step back. When, when people are making health decisions for their family, they want to have the facts. And I certainly right. want to direct people to resources that provide trustworthy, science-based information about the safety of vaccines. And vaccines have unfortunately become subject to misinformation and disinformation that erodes confidence in vaccination. And it's really important for me to say, this up front because I know parents and caregivers want to do 
everything they can to protect their children. And vaccines are an important part of that formula for protection. Um, Today's vaccines use only the required ingredients needed uh, to be safe and effective and help prevent diseases because that's the main purpose of a vaccine. Vaccines prevent diseases that can be dangerous and even deadly. And vaccines greatly reduce the risk of infection by working with our body's natural defenses to safely develop immunity to disease. One of the concerns that I, I, I hear a lot from people is just about the safety of the vaccines. How are how do they how do we know that the vaccines are safe? Well, let me just say that vaccines are very safe. And the United States has a longstanding vaccine safety system that ensures vaccines are as safe as possible. So currently, the U.S. has the safest vaccine supply in history. Millions of children safely receive vaccines each year. And the most common side effects, while they may vary by vaccine type, are typically very mild and may include pains, swelling or redness at the injection site. Years and years of testing are required by law to ensure that vaccines are safe before they are made available in the United States. And once a vaccine is in use, the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA monitor any possible side effects that get reported through a monitoring system called the VAERS system or the Vaccine Adverse Event Report. Reporting system. And there are also other vaccine safety systems within states and even within clinical practices and health systems. Any hint of a problem with a vaccine is going to prompt the CDC and FDA to carry out further investigation to understand the origins of the safety concern. So vaccines are very safe. What is the science behind how vaccines work? Uh, I know, like we talked a little bit before we started recording about COVID and how that's sort of every everywhere right now in regards to the vaccine and getting vaccinated and all that stuff. And I realize that that the newer vaccines maybe work a little bit differently. But in in general, how do vaccines help prevent disease? So that's a great question. And I think we have to take a step back to really, in order to understand how vaccines work, we have to know about how our body fights illnesses to then understand how the vaccine jumps in and helps to protect us. So when germs like a bacteria or a virus invade our body, they attack and they multiply. Uh, And this invasion is called an infection. And that's what causes the illness. And the immune system uses several tools to fight infection. So our blood contains red blood cells and those that carry oxygen to our tissues and organs and white blood cells or immune cells for fighting infection. And it's these white cells that consist of macrophages, B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes. And the first time a body encounters a germ, it takes several days. It doesn't happen immediately. It takes a few days uh, to make and use all all the germ fighting tools that we may need to get over the infection. So think about if you've ever encountered a common cold or some other type of sickness. It takes a couple days for our body to, okay, get our grounding and then really take control and help uh, move us past that infection. So after the infection, 
our immune system is going to remember what it learned about how to protect the body against that disease. And the body keeps a few of those T lymphocytes called memory cells that go into action quickly if our body ever encounters that same germ again. So when those familiar germs are detected, the B lymphocytes then produce the antibodies that are used um, to attack them. So in short, Vaccines help to develop our immunity by imitating an infection. And this type of infection, however, almost never causes illness, but it does get our immune system to produce those T lymphocytes and antibodies. So sometimes after you get a vaccine, there's an imitation infection, and that can cause some minor symptoms or discomfort like a fever. And those minor symptoms are normal and really show us that our body is working to help build immunity against that particular particular infection. Uh, so, and once that imitation infection goes away, our body has a supply of those memory cells and the B lymphocytes to activate, to fight diseases that we may be uh, exposed to in the future. And it can take a couple of weeks for our body to produce the number of T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes after vaccination. So it is possible that in that period, someone may develop symptoms and get sick because the vaccine hasn't yet had enough time to provide protection. Um, but in this case, vaccines insta implement, excuse me, a consistent way for us to develop our immunity to something we may be exposed to in the future. So it's sort of how we establish herd immunity without having to make everybody sick in order to accomplish that. Exactly. And there are often a lot of questions about uh, natural immunity and how well that prov provides protection. And certainly it conveys some protection, but it's unknown and inconsistent in terms of how long it lasts and the level of protection that's afforded. Vaccines take the questions away. They let us know that there's a consistent and documented known response by our um, memory cells and then to activate the B lymphocytes to uh, get antibodies in place to fight the infection. So that's a tremendous benefit with um, vaccines is that they help us to develop that immunity uh, in ways that is going to last. How long does that immunity last? Um, like when I, if you get, um, you get a vaccine for, we'll say like the flu, right? I get my flu vaccine every year or your kids get like their MMR or um, HPV, for example, like we were talking about. How long does the body remember what it learned, if that makes sense, before you need to have like a like a booster or something like that? It's a great, great question. And so uh, it's going to vary by the vaccine type and the disease for which it's protecting you. There are some vaccines that we only get once or we may get once and then get a booster later. I'm going to use a vaccine uh, as an example that is uh, quite familiar to most people, and that is a tetanus vaccine. So you may know that you need a tetanus booster every how many years? Every 10 years. And the reason for that 10-year mark is that after studying the 
uh, titer levels or the antibody protection levels, uh, it was determined that that was the right time point to give the booster because they started to see a waning protection for that particular type of vaccine. And of course, we're at risk for tetanus throughout our life. Uh, there's always the notorious rusty nail uh, example that is used that you have a misstep and a nail perhaps punctures through your shoe and, and perhaps puts you at risk of developing tetanus. So in that case, you get a booster every 10 years. That's how the vaccine schedule gets set is what is the appropriate interval or timing for someone to get a boost of a vaccine or and maybe in some cases you don't need a boost you just need a single vaccine and that comes down to the vaccine type the way in which the disease is spread and different uh, potential exposures that can occur so it varies uh, with the case of HPV vaccination if you're vaccinated between the ages of 9 and 14 you need only two doses if you're vaccinated between the ages of 15 and 45, or if you're immunocompromised, you need to have three doses. And there's no booster needed after having those two or three uh, doses of vaccination. So there's a lot of variability uh, by vaccine, but it's very closely studied and monitored to understand in people how to achieve the optimal level of protection that's going to help their body fight off the attack if it should happen. And I guess you just mentioned, I, I didn't realize adults could get the HPV vaccine. Like I knew like it was tested for safety and stuff like that, but like I didn't know that that was, is that recommended? It's a relatively new development. So with HPV vaccination, it's routinely recommended for ages 9 to 26. So that means all you have to do is tell your provider or tell your child's provider that uh, you want the vaccine. For those who are age 27 to 45, there are some people who may benefit from HPV vaccination. And so they also can engage in shared clinical decision-making with a healthcare provider. That recommendation was modified in 2019. So it is a fairly recent development. And let me just say the ideal age for HPV vaccination is that 9 to 12-year-old age group. And it's ideal for at least two reasons. The first reason is the immunogenicity of the response. Kids have a very robust response to the HPV vaccine when it's given between the ages of 9 and 12 or 9 and 14 if we want to extend it because that's why only two doses are needed. So that's the first reason, the robustness of the response. The second reason is HPV is a preventive vaccine, meaning that you need to get the vaccine and complete the series to develop your protection before you might be exposed. And while we're not really having this conversation today, and parents and caregivers don't always like to have this conversation, the data yeah. and evidence tell us that kids start to engage in normal human exploratory behaviors that that involve intimacy at about those teen years. And that's when they could be exposed to HPV. 
So those are the two reasons why it's important, uh, the immune response, and second, just the timing from a behavioral perspective to ensure protection before potential exposure. Now, is there, because I know it's also really common too, isn't it? HPV? Yes, HPV. Does vac- go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, does a vaccine benefit you if you've already been infected and just maybe don't know about it? So there are many types of HPV and the current HPV vaccine that's available in the United States is called Gardasil 9. And that nine number indicates that it protects against nine of the many types of HPV. So there are about 150 types of HPV. 40 of those affect the anogenital region of humans. And nine of those are included in the current vaccine. So it's possible that by getting the vaccine, even after you've been exposed, you still may develop protection against some of the other types. You're not necessarily going to go out and get, get all the types at once. And there are two types in particular that are thought to be highly oncogenic or really um, potent in terms of their cancer-causing potential. And those are type numbers 16 and 18. And they're included in the Gardasil 9 vaccine. So if we can protect people against those types and then the additional types that are linked to cancer. And it's not just cancer we're protecting against with HPV vaccination. And I always like to point that out. So each year, about 36,000 people in the United States are diagnosed with an HPV cancer, and that covers six different types of cancer, cervical cancer, oropharyngeal cancer, vaginal vulvar cancer, anal, and also um, penile cancer. So those are the six types of cancer. However, HPV vaccination also protects against 200,000 cases of precancers of the cervix, 500,000 cases of genital warts, and 1,000 cases of recurrent respiratory papillomatosis. So there are a range of different HPV diseases in addition to cancers and precancers that this vaccine can protect us against. So it's a good idea to get it. It's a great idea. It's cancer prevention first and foremost. What a great tool we have at our fingertips. It's safe. It works really well and it provides long lasting protection. And it's going to have additional benefits in terms of protecting against some of those other HPV diseases as well. I have, uh, I had a, a doctor on a couple seasons ago who we were talking about vaccines and and he was one of the original people who volunteered to be in the clinical trials uh, for the HPV vaccine. So kind of a small world, I guess. That's awesome. When it comes to vaccines and parents, you know, I, I people ask me all the time, cause I have three autistic kids and people ask me all the time, like, are my kids vaccinated? And I'm like, yeah, of course they're vaccinated. Cause one has nothing to do with the other. And I guess what are some of the, the most important vaccines for kids, for parents to consider their kids getting at an early age? So vaccines are really a success story, and they're one of the biggest public health accomplishments in the U.S. and in the world. They Mm -hmm. prevent diseases. They've saved countless lives, prevented countless numbers of people from being sick. They protect individuals, families, and communities from unnecessary sickness and death. And uh, in this case, most parents 
vaccinate their children according to the CDC uh, recommended immunization schedule. And that protects young children from 14 potentially serious diseases before their second birthday. And there are additional vaccines and protections afforded throughout the lifespan. Um, Vaccinating children on time protects them and anyone around them who has a weakened immune system or cannot yet be vaccinated. Um, And children do receive vaccines across the lifespan, um, all the way from birth. So in the United States, um, virtually every single child born in a hospital or medical care facility receives its first dose of hepatitis B vaccine before leaving the hospital. So it really does start immediately following birth through age 18. And there also are adult vaccinations that are recommended for later in life. And the vaccine schedules are organized by this birth to age six and then from age seven to 18 because the the first round of vaccines come in those early years. And they protect against a range of different conditions, including things like chickenpox, which is a new one that I did not get to benefit from as a child. Uh, I had a particularly bad case of chickenpox and my parents were relieved that my two younger sisters, we all had them at the same time. So I'm sure that wasn't fun, but they were somewhat relieved to have all of us. Um, Measles, uh, mumps, whooping cough. um, These are diseases that are very contagious and can um, be completely prevented with vaccinations and achieving herd immunity. So uh, it's important to take a look at those vaccine schedules and talk with your child's healthcare provider about which vaccines are recommended. And we also have a number of um, schedules in place to help healthcare providers too with some checks and balances. So for example, there are vaccines required to go to kindergarten. So mm-hmm. if you want to go your child to go to a school for kindergarten, they have to have certain vaccines. There's reporting and tracking, monitoring and follow-up. The same is true in many states for some adolescent vaccines, including uh whooping cough, a vaccine, a new vaccine for whooping cough, another dose of that, um, meningitis, and then HPV. And there are some requirements related to that for about seventh grade or so. And then there are additional requirements to go to college to prove uh, vaccinations. And so a lot of times if vaccines are missed across any of those different time points, uh, there's a checks and balance system in place to try to ensure as many kids as possible are going to be protected, which in turn means protected families and communities. I have, well, my oldest is immunocompromised. So we mentioned COVID earlier and that we spent 15 months on really tight lockdown, just me and my kids, uh, because he, the vaccine wasn't available yet. Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't going to take any chances with his, with his health. Um, and I know that I had, when I, when my kids went back to school this year, I have to provide the vaccine, uh, updated vaccine records every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just sort of a thing and people are kind of getting all bent out of shape about it now, but we've been doing that Forever. I, mean, I remember For many when I was years. a kid, I had to have vaccines before I was, um, and I hated it as a kid because like, <laughs> I knew I had to get a shot before, like I went in eighth grade or something. Uh, but I don't, I don't know why I, I, I guess maybe I'll never understand the logic behind it. Well, unfortunately, um, 
I think there's been some terminology differences that have really raised flags. Um, for example, for as long as I've been studying vaccines, um, it's been called an immunization record. That's how it's been phrased. And That's suddenly, yeah, and suddenly this word passport, which really brought about a lot of negative connotations and visceral reactions. And um, immunization records have been in place in some form for more than 100 years. So yeah. since the first smallpox and vaccines were available, there's been tracking of an individual's vaccine record or immunization record. I use vaccination and immunization um, interchangeably, by the way. So mm -hmm. they mean the same thing. And uh, it's important to know that all of us have an immunization record somewhere. Um, I recently had to produce my um, measles vaccination record when I was at the University of South Carolina because there was a potential outbreak on campus. And so they mm -hmm. sent a letter or an email uh, to say, uh, get this in order because we may have to check. And if you can't show that you had a booster dose, uh, which I did have before going to college, you'll have to get one. And so I called my mom and I know not everybody has this level of privilege and please know I acknowledge this. Um, I called my mom and she pulled my original card with my vaccines from my very first visit to the doctor in 1975, uh, pulled it out. It was at her fingertips and took a screenshot of it with her cell phone and sent it to me. So Moms are this, amazing. yeah, she's amazing. It's amazing. But I mean, vaccination records are just something that parents parents and caregivers are accustomed to keeping track of. And again, I want to acknowledge the privilege I have in that way for children who have um, instability in who cares for them. Yeah. It's a lot harder to track through social services and through other mechanisms, but most of us can find one. Now, states have states keep an immunization information system or an immunization registry. So if you can figure out in which state somebody may have received a vaccine, vaccine, you can usually track down the timing of the dose if it was correctly entered into that system. Um, but we don't yet have our own access to that in most places. There are some states that are um, working on forward public facing vaccine portals. So we all could go with a stroke of a key and print off our vaccine record from the state or from across multiple states. Yeah. Like we're, we're tied in with my chart for the Cleveland Clinic, mm -hmm. right? And, and Akron Children's. And so the vaccine records are always on my phone. Yes. Um, right there. They don't have a super convenient way to print them out, <laughs> but you have it, right? So you always know what you're, what you're uh, looking to do. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring this up because, uh, and then we'll dive into the, some of the things that we're going to kind of debunk a little bit. When I hear people tell me that, you know, I had measles as a kid and it was fine. Like, I don't want my kid to have, you know, the MMR or whatever. I, I don't know that they realize like it's how highly contagious it is how miserable the people are who have it. And then the damage it does to your immune system mm -hmm. for a period of time after, like even when you get over it, your immune system is compromised, isn't it? I can't remember what it's called. Like, uh, amnesia. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a 
process by which our immune system has a temporary um, immunocompromised position that it you know, takes time to recover from that. And you can cause um, some short and long-term damage. And some people really believe that naturally acquired immunity, so immunity from having the disease itself, is better than the immunity provided by vaccines. Um, but natural infections can still cause severe disease complications and can be deadly. So just because someone else experienced a mild case of measles that didn't maybe cause discomfort but didn't cause serious illness, it doesn't mean that someone else who develops a case of measles as a result, because measles are incredibly contagious, uh, that that person's going to have the same outcome. And that's true of even diseases that are considered to be really, really mild, like like chicken pox. Um, right. You know, people can still get very, very sick. It is impossible to predict who will get serious infections that can lead to hospitalization and even death. And this is why vaccines give us assuredness. And uh, even if maybe our body doesn't develop sufficient immunity, because yours does and mine does and somebody else's does, I'm going to infer some protection from mm -hmm. that herd, uh, that's really important. And quite frankly, for different diseases, there are different thresholds for what the type of herd immunity and protection means. So uh, in some cases, uh, it has to be really high, like in the 90%. And that's really the case for something like measles that is so incredibly transmissible. You have to have people really vaccinated. And fortunately, we do. There are pockets in the U.S. and there are occasional outbreaks. But for the most part, we've done a great job with getting kids vaccinated uh, through kindergarten to protect against measles outbreaks. But yeah, we hear people with anecdotal, um, I like to call those N of one studies, so that your experience has characterized and completely shaped your worldview about a particular issue. And well, I want to acknowledge your experience, and I'm grateful that you had a positive or uh, more positive experience like, than maybe uh, anticipated, that may not be the like same experience autism, of others in your family and at your neighbors different. as well. Everybody mm -hmm. is going to react differently. All, all four people in my house are fully vaccinated for COVID. My 15-year-old had like no adverse effects to, to, the, uh, to either dose, right? The mm -hmm. rest of us, it sucked for a couple of days, you know? And, <laughs> right. and so there was, there's no way to predict who's going to um, experience illness one way. And, and I think a lot of times we see, we, we sort of mirror our own experiences and assume that that's what everyone else experiences as well. And that's just not, not the way that it works. Um, and on that topic, yes. uh, I want, before we get into this, I want to note that there, I view, I view that there is a difference between vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vaxxer movement. And we don't even have to talk about the anti-vaxxers, but there's a difference between the two, right? One is deliberately putting misinformation out there. The other is concerned about something and they, they seek knowledge and uh, expertise. And maybe they're on the fence because they just want to learn more before they do something, which I can respect that. Uh, and I feel like those people are reachable. And so Let's talk a little bit about some of the common concerns that I have heard over and over again over the years and just sort of maybe debunk some of that stuff and, and help clear up some of that misinformation. 
That would be great. And I share your belief. I believe very much. And I think research shows us that vaccine acceptance occurs on a continuum of varying levels of vaccine confidence and willingness to accept based on vaccine type and timing. And refusing all vaccines is on one end. And that's really anti-vaccination. And accepting all vaccines on time as recommended is on the other. And quite frankly, most everyone falls somewhere in the middle because Mm -hmm. not everyone gets a flu shot. Not everyone gets all vaccines on time. And so there's always some reason for some delay or hesitancy that can happen. And as you said, that's often, and I started out my remarks by acknowledging that people want good information, information that they feel they can trust and that will build their confidence. So somewhere in the middle emerges this hesitancy, reluctance, or refusal. And historically, we've seen that most prevalent for MMR, Mm -hmm. which has largely been overcome, uh, but flu and HPV, and now flu, HPV, and COVID-19 vaccines. And so vaccine hesitancy threatens uh, to reverse progress that's been made over the years in tackling vaccine-preventable diseases. In the United States, we actually have done a really good job of kids get vaccinated here. It may be a vocal group, but they are a small minority. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of kids in the United States are getting vaccines. They're getting them on time and as recommended. But In other countries, the anti-vaccination and efforts to undermine or erode confidence in vaccinations has really taken hold. And so the World Health Organization has named vaccine hesitancy as one of the world's top 10 global public health threats. Uh, So it's certainly not something to just sweep away. And so vaccine hesitancy, referring to that delay in acceptance and such, but vaccine confidence, let's talk about what that means. So vaccine confidence means that there's trust by parents, patients, and healthcare providers in recommended vaccines, in the providers who will administer the vaccines, and in the processes that led to vaccine licensure and then recommendation. And in order to build confidence, we need to make sure there are trusted messengers, that we are emphasizing that no corners are cut in vaccine development processes. It's a rigorous process. And we have to be clear about the risks and benefits. And we have to use language that can be understood. We can't be talking about viral vectors and introducing a jargon that's going to simply complicate things. We want to be clear and transparent, but doing so in a way that is going to be understandable. And, and we have to... Yeah, easily digestible. Exactly. And we also have to confront misconceptions and myths to what we're leading into. And this is particularly important because disease risk is not outweighing fears about the vaccines uh, for the current pandemic, which is a really challenging space. Um, But people who are vaccine hesitant or who lack confidence in vaccinations, they're not monolithic. They uh, represent great heterogeneity 
heterogeneity uh, among groups that have experienced the pandemic very differently, but also groups that have historically and are currently marginalized, minoritized, and excluded. Mm -hmm. And so we have to acknowledge that trauma that comes with a new innovation and a timeliness factor. And that applies to COVID-19 vaccines. HPV vaccine, no longer the new kid on the block. So hopefully we can think about building on uh, a confidence in the 16 years of data on safety and effectiveness that exist. So let's jump into some of these uh, misconceptions and myths and, and take those on. Right. My personal uh, favorite is do vaccines cause autism? Well, you have a world. very personal connection yes. to, uh, to that issue. Uh, no. Scientific studies and reviews continue to show there is no relationship between vaccines and autism. And some people have suggested that thimerosal, which is a compound that contains mercury in vaccines given to infants and young children, may have something to do with autism. And others have suggested that the MMR vaccine could be linked to autism. But numerous scientists and researchers have studied and continue to study and reach the exact same conclusion. There is no link between vaccines and autism. How about do, do uh, vaccines contain mercury and other toxins? Well, sure. I just mentioned thimerosal. So, uh, yeah. So today's vaccines use only the ingredients that are needed to be safe and effective as possible. And each ingredient that's included in a vaccine has a very specific purpose. So there's something that's going to provide immunity or protection. There's something that's going to keep the vaccine safe and long lasting. And then there's something for the production of the vaccine. And that's true when you look across all different recommended vaccines. Vaccines prevent these diseases that can be dangerous or deadly and reduce our risk of infection by building our immunity, as we talked about earlier. So let's jump into thimerosal a little bit. So thimerosal sure. is usually the one uh, because it is a different form of mercury than causes mercury poisoning. So it is already a different type. It is an ethyl mercury, which mm -hmm. is structurally different from a methyl mercury. So from the down. beginning, yeah, so from the beginning, there's not a chance for the mercury poisoning and poisoning to occur because it's a different type of mercury. Um, it's safe to use ethyl mercury vaccines because it's processed very differently in the body and it's less likely to build up in the body because it's used in very tiny amounts. Um, and even so, in today's world, most vaccines do not contain thimerosal in them. Um, and Mercury is a naturally occurring element. It's found in the Earth's uh, air, soil, water. Fish. Um, yeah, fish, Seafood. but these two, exactly. Yeah. So it's certainly found in different kinds of fish and at high exposures to that methylmercury in fish uh, can certainly lead to challenges. But this is a different form that has been used previously in vaccines. So uh, 
there is a nuance to this question about do vaccines contain mercury and other toxins? Yes, but it's a different type of mercury. And yes, any toxins that are included have a very specific purpose and are used in amounts that are safe and are going to help build our immunity in a long-lasting, durable way. Oh, ooh, do vaccines weaken the immune system? This is really a, a surprisingly common myth to me that I also have been asked by people. Um, so vaccines do not weaken the immune system, which has a great capacity to generate immunity. The vaccines that kids receive in the first two years of life are just a drop in the bucket when compared to the thousands and thousands of environmental challenges that they manage successfully every day with their immune system. And studies have shown us that vaccinated children are not at greater risk of other infections uh, than unvaccinated children. So uh, bacterial and viral infections often predispose children and adults to severe invasive infections. And in this case, vaccinations can help protect kids uh, and do not weaken the immune system, actually help to build our immunity and sort of our, um, to use an old outdated term, our Rolodex of protection. I always think about uh, all of the different things that we are protected against and it just continues to accumulate and build over time. You can kind of look at it as antivirus on your computer, right? Like it's constantly being updated to protect you from different threats. It runs in the background so you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about it. And there are some times that you need to download updates, right? Which yes. would be like a vaccine or yes. a booster. And yes. that just helps to bolster and make uh, everything safer for you to exist. 100%. How about uh, side effects? We did a little bit, of, we did talk a little bit about that, but like, what are some of the common side effects? Sure. Just like any medication that you may be prescribed uh, by a physician or healthcare provider or an over-the-counter medicine that you could even take, um, vaccines can cause side effects. Now, fortunately, for the most part, these side effects are very minor. I mentioned uh, some pain, redness, or swelling at the injection site, uh, low-grade fever, um, but they generally go away within a few days. Um, and side effects are going to be different by the different vaccine type. And for example, with HPV vaccine, when it got rolled out, they started to notice that some, um, at this time, it was only for girls. It's now for everyone. So don't lose that important point. But initially in 2006, when it was uh, licensed and recommended for girls, they were fainting. So they were fainting. Now, these are 12-year-old girls. So we could talk about 12-year-old girls and perhaps their proclivity for some drama in their life, uh, but they were fainting. And so this was taken very seriously. And so the um, observations of syncope were reported into the monitoring systems. And uh, the FDA reviewed and decided that the actual label for the vaccine should be changed to include a 15-minute observation period, following administration to make sure that there wouldn't be fainting. So that's just an example of how the system works for us to ensure that there are safety measures and precautions put into place. Now, following that introduction, the reports of fainting have stayed still pretty rare over time, but the observation period is still um, used just in case uh, someone may experience uh, lightheadedness or fainting. 
Cool. Oh, this is another one. Uh, how about is a childhood vaccine schedule too aggressive? So as a reminder, most parents vaccinate their children according to the recommendations of the CDC. So according to the schedule to protect them against uh, these different diseases and vaccinating children on time is going to protect them and anyone around them with a weakened immune system. And the vaccine schedule is based on ideal timing. So the immunization schedule is carefully designed to provide the right protection at the right time. It's also designed to prevent complications. While babies are born with some immunity, they've not yet built up necessary defenses against the diseases that vaccines prevent. Uh, they also, the schedule is built around early protection because it can take weeks for a vaccine to help a baby make protective disease-fighting antibodies. Uh, it's the best protection. Children won't have the best protection from these diseases until they get all the recommended doses on time. Uh, Long-term protection matters because maternal antibodies and if breastfeeding is in play, they don't provide sufficient protection over time. And spreading illness, not vaccinating your child on time can make someone else sick or worse, expose your child to sickness. So the CDC sets the immunization schedule based based on the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommendations. And the child and adolescent schedules are also approved by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So the adult schedule gets approved as well. And if a parent chooses to delay, skip, or reject vaccines, there, there are risks. And with this decision becomes important responsibility to protect a child's life and health, the life and health of others in the family, community, and other places that you may visit. Okay. And here's kind of the, the doozy uh, question. Is vaccine injury real? And if so, how common is it? I want to preface that. Well, I should have prefaced that first, but... Uh, by definition, right? Um, <laughs> my understanding is that vaccine injury is a real thing, that it does happen. It's incredibly rare. I don't know how much is actually tied specifically to a vaccine. And I, I think that there's genetic, uh, underlying genetic uh, conditions that may make someone more susceptible to the to that type of reaction. And so I generally don't dismiss people who claim vaccine uh, injury because I, I do know people who have like gone through that whole process and it was tied to the vaccine and it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rare. But can we just talk about that? Because that's, that's one of the big sort of billboard signs that they mm -hmm. use to try and discourage people from, from getting vaccinated. What's sort of the deal with uh, that? So I think you hit all of the the high points and acknowledged that, you know, most people who get vaccines have no issues at all. There may be some of those minor side effects like pain, redness, swelling, soreness at the injection site or a low grade fever, but uh, far, far fewer have any serious problems. And vaccines like any medicine can have side effects, but these are very, very rare. Um, some health problems that follow vaccinations 
are actually not caused by vaccines. Uh, there may be um, a conflation between the vaccine and the timing of a condition. Uh, it could result in identification of a condition in proximity to administration of a vaccine. And there are others who are much smarter than me and much more qualified to be able to disentangle those complex relationships between timing of vaccine and uh, an injury or illness or something else that's diagnosed. Um, mm -hmm. But in rare, very rare cases, as you said, a vaccine can cause a problem. Um, and most notably, that comes in the form of a very severe allergic reaction. And as a result of the body fighting that allergic reaction, there can be um, other, other side effects that emerge as well. In those instances, uh, the U.S. has the VAERS safety and monitoring system in place to track and investigate all such reports of serious uh, vaccine injuries resulting. And whether or not those are directly linked to the vaccine or not, they're going to be investigated. And there are some cases where the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program may actually provide compensation to people who um, have found uh, that to be injured as a result of a covered vaccine. So, uh, Yes, they're they're real. They're very very rare, and uh, it's hard for me to give um, statistics because they vary so significantly by different vaccine type, by age group, um, by timing of administration. So there are a range of factors that come into play. But suffice to say that they are very rare. Very rare. Okay. Uh, let's just briefly talk about we're living through COVID right now, and there is a lot of concern about the COVID vaccine being, we've talked about how they don't cut corners and it takes time and there's history and years, whatever. With the COVID vaccine, it was sort of developed in record time, but the technology was pre-existing. Mm -hmm. So it's, we didn't reinvent the wheel on this. It was everybody working together. Red tape was cut through and funding, right? Like we just poured yes. money into making this happen yep. in a, in a expedited amount of time. Mm -hmm. Should people be concerned about that or was this the result of kind of the world coming together to solve a problem before it killed more people than it already has? Yes, the culmination of all of those factors, the urgency, uh, 650,000 people in the U.S. alone, and that's probably an undercount, have died as a result of COVID-19. And that is just unbelievable in our lifetime to think about losing. Um, and you may know people, I certainly know people who lost their life to COVID-19. I also know people who had severe disease, were hospitalized, and have known many who've been infected. And so this is something that has likely touched all of us in some way, shape, or form. And the culmination of everybody coming together, especially the cutting of the red tape, the large-scale, unprecedented investment in conducting the trials to assess safety and effectiveness were really uh, just like nothing we've seen before. But it was the culmination of a range of fields and people and organizations saying, we have to put this to a stop. And I mentioned the United States the wor and the world. You know, this is a global issue and global threat. So as a result of that, there's been work being done with this style of vaccine, an mRNA or messenger 
RNA vaccine for many, many years. But the different types of infections they were trying to prevent didn't fit well with the technology. It just wasn't, it didn't work quite the same way. So when the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the coronavirus was sequenced, they took a look at that and they thought, wow, this looks really amenable to this mRNA technology, also potentially viral vector technology, which later was determined to be the case with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And so it was all of these factors sort of converging and coming together to move forward. Um, The number of people, the time they're being observed, uh, the continued observation that's occurring, uh, this is truly not like anything we've, we've ever seen before. And it should provide some assurance that there have been some pauses pressed, um, myocarditis concerns, mm-hmm. other concerns where these were reported, identified, hey, let's take a closer look at this and determine if we need to really do a major cost benefit analysis to understand how the risks posed truly do benefit the population. So it is a a really exciting time as well to see how all of this could work. And COVID-19 vaccines are just one of the important tools for reducing deaths, along with uh, other risk mitigation measures, um, including wearing masks, um, testing, and limiting mobility. So in combination, we have the potential um, ventilation as well. Ventilation is an important aspect that is often um, undercounted in its value. So The Delta variant that is currently prevalent in the United States is much more transmissible than the initial strain. And uh, it's possible that future mutations may not only be more transmissible, but also may be more deadly. Uh, And so vaccinations offer us a tool today that has been shown to be safe, uh, 200 million, I think we're up to, uh, have received at least one dose and 170 plus million plus are fully vaccinated. Um, And that's all great news. We're we're trending in the right direction. Um, I think it's also important to acknowledge where we're not trending in the right direction. And we have some major challenges in the South, for example, where rates continue to lag. An article published yesterday using some um, probability statistics and calculations said that an unvaccinated person in New York state has the same risk as a vaccinated person in a Southern state. And that just goes to show the level of um, prevalence and transmissibility that is um, occurring right now. We're in a very urgent state and time. And So COVID vaccines are new and it's normal for people to have questions about them and the sheer amount of information and misinformation that's out there can be really overwhelming. But these vaccines were not just made up in a a few weeks. It's years and years of building the evidence base, understanding what type of infection would fit with the vaccine technology, uh, ensuring that they're safe and showing that they work, Uh, they work incredibly well 
against preventing um, death, which is what they were tested against. So they were not tested against infection, but we've seen the benefits as they thought would be the case in people who are vaccinated, who are infected, largely experiencing very minor or completely asymptomatic cases. And we'll just timestamp this as September 9th, just to reference the the point, yeah, so that we don't yes. uh, lose track of that. Um, why is it taking so long for kids under 12 to be able to be vaccinated? Because right now that's like, that's one of the bigger concerns, especially as the new variants seem to be impacting kids in a great, in greater numbers. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, children can catch COVID-19 and pass it on to others. And we're fortunate that for the most part, they seem to be less likely to become seriously ill, but the numbers are just, uh, you know, off the charts. The American Academy of Pediatrics indicated 180,000 new cases uh, among kids in just the last week, which is a huge number. And they estimate four and a half to five million American children have been infected. So all three companies that have uh, vaccines in the U.S. that have received either full authorization or emergency use authorization um, are studying their vaccines in children. So they studied them first in the 12 to 15-year-old age group, or in some cases, 12 to 18, uh, and then 5 to 11-year-olds, and then 2 to 5-year-olds. And then they'll follow with infants six months and up, for example. Um, And in this case, the CDC has recommended that pregnant women get vaccinated because they're at higher risk for serious disease, but also can convey some protection to their unborn children. Yeah. So that's a new development there. So why is it taking so long? Well, This should, again, provide some assurance and comfort. Um, The FDA requires longer-term follow-up data on children than adults, and the FDA has not yet given us a sense of how long it's going to take to review the research, but a previous emergency use authorizations request, you know, take a couple months. And so vaccines for grade schoolers, so that 6 to 12-year-old or 6 to 11-year-old age group, since 12-year-olds can already get the Pfizer version, um, are likely to be available maybe late this year or early next year, and then hopefully fully two to five-year-olds sometime next year as well. But, uh, you know, it's coming. And so in order to protect those kids, we have to take advantage of other risk mitigation measures that I mentioned, including wearing masks, um, ventilation, uh, reducing our mobility, and, and ensuring that those of us who can be vaccinated are getting vaccinated. So adults and children age 12 and over can get the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, which is now called Comirnaty. Um, And only adults are eligible right now for the Moderna and one dose Johnson & Johnson um, vaccines. So uh, they're coming. But, you know, don't delay. If you can be vaccinated against COVID-19, help keep kids safe and communities safer by doing your part in getting vaccinated and engaging in other risk mitigation practices. Wear a mask, social distance, do all the Mm -hmm. responsible things because there are people out there who just cannot protect themselves. Some people will choose not to, but there are people out there who cannot protect themselves and as humans we owe it to other humans to show some compassion and do what we can to help protect those who cannot protect themselves. So thank you for that. 
Um, yes. I guess, well, we've reached the point where I just want to know, like, is there anything else that you think is important that families know in regards to vaccines? Yeah, and also related to the pandemic. So, you know, the pandemic really caused major delays and cancellations for parents uh, bringing their kids in for well child visits, which is the type of visit with a healthcare provider that is most usually uh, inclusive of vaccinations that are mm-hmm. recommended for a certain age group. And so those have been uh, delayed, put off, canceled. Now is the time to get back on track with any vaccination that are recommended for your child. If you don't know, give your child's healthcare provider a call. Talk to your school nurse. Find out which vaccines your child may be due for uh, and and get those taken care of. Um, Healthcare providers and practices are going out of their way to create the safest possible environment to avoid delays in preventive care. And uh, in in a great change that happened in May, um, co-administration of vaccines is now allowed. So if you have a 12-year-old who can get vaccinated against COVID-19, your 12-year-old can also get missed doses of any other recommended vaccines, including whooping cough, HPV, cancer prevention, and meningitis all at the same time. Oh, all right. Yes. So there's no time like today to uh, get in touch with your child's healthcare provider or take a look at the really great website that the CDC has uh, to let you know what vaccines your child is, is due for. And I guess one last question. When anybody asks me about whether they should vaccinate their kids based on like I'm supposed to know any more than, you know, anybody else, it's to me like that's a decision between yourself and your healthcare provider, not some Facebook group or uh, conspiracy theory website or, uh, you know, just social media in general, like talk to your doctor, right? Like they went to school specifically to help you navigate these types of things. They don't make lots of money on vaccines because those are like, they do not, they're a loss leader. They're, they're a yeah, loss leader. They, they, it's a loss. <laughs> they, they don't make money. on it. It's a, it's a public service. It is. That they're doing and um, they vaccinate their own kids. Right. So like, I, just talk to your doctor. Don't, don't let fear or concern of things that you've read online, like talk to a known expert. What are some websites that would be considered reputable or reliable uh, for seeking information about vaccines? Sure. And thanks so much for saying that because research consistently shows us that a healthcare provider is the most trusted resource for this type of information. So thanks for giving that um, plug. It is important. So I'm going to say this and then give my caveat. So the (laughs) CDC has really great information for parents who have questions about vaccines, um, but some parents and caregivers have lost some trust in government resources, um, unfortunately. But the CDC does have excellent information. And so that's at cdc.gov forward slash vaccines forward slash parents. Um, And it's laid out really nice by what, how old is your child? Click on it 
it and it'll tell you exactly what to do. Um, I also want to give some other resources. So the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is one of the top hospitals for children in the U.S. and the world, has a really great vaccine resource uh, called the Vaccine Education Center. And this includes print materials that are easily downloadable or viewable on mobile devices as well as desktops and also has videos. And then two additional, uh, Vaccinate Your Family. It's vaccinateyourfamily.org, a great resource. And then United for Adolescent Vaccination, especially for uh, any of the adolescent vaccines. And that is unity, the number four, teenvax.org. And lastly, if you're interested in learning more about COVID-19 vaccines for you or your children, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital has accurate information on the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And right now we have a great resource called Vaccines Bring Us Closer that offers accurate information about vaccines uh, and including testimonials and stories and other um, reputable information that can help you understand the importance. Uh, you guys were on earlier in the year when we talked about, we were talking about COVID uh, as the main topic. And you guys actually have these printable information for kids in different age groups and developmental we do. places uh, to help them understand. It, it sort of empowers them to protect themselves. Um, That's right. At an age appropriate level to help take some of the fear out, out of this stuff. And so St. Jude is absolutely uh, a solid resource. Um, I like the Cleveland Clinic as well, Mayo. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, Those are great Hopkins, resources. Like there's, yes. Just stay away from like the conspiracy laden website, Facebook groups where people are talking about nonsense and just just talk to your doctor. That's a personal decision between you and your doctor. And uh, they'll help you make the decision that's best for yourself and, and for your loved ones. So um, I agree. Well, I think that's about it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for helping to spell some of the uh, misinformation that's floating around out there and to help people maybe better understand why vaccines are so important, why we consider them to be safe, why they are safe, and and how we benefit as a society from vaccines. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. Uh, vaccines are so important and especially uh, you know, getting more kids vaccinated against HPV. Uh, we just crossed the 50% point for 13 to 17 year olds a few years ago and we're closing in on 60%, but we still fall well below the proportion of kids that we want to ensure uh, are protected against HPV cancer and other diseases. So um, check us out at stjude.org forward slash HPV to learn more about our program. And uh, we welcome anyone to email us at preventhpv at stjude.org. And um, thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And uh, my kids, I told you, are vaccinated for HPV as well. So excellent. Everybody excellent. else can uh, talk to your doctor about doing the same. So you that have a great, great rest of the week. I don't know, day, Thursday, Thursday. It is Thursday, Thursday. September 9th. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We did. We did say that we <laughs> have a, it all slurs together anymore. Have, <laughs> have a great uh, weekend. Stay safe. Thank you for everything that you do to make us safer and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. You have all a great right. weekend. Thanks. You right, too. Bye-bye. Before I close things out today, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Brandt for taking the time to come on the show, helping to educate us about the HPV vaccine and vaccines in general. If you guys are not familiar with St. Jude, 
They are an absolutely amazing organization. And I am so honored to have uh, been a part of delivering this message to you guys and and helping to provide accurate information so that you can make the best decision uh, for yourself and your family. Uh, All of their information will be in the show notes below, along with a bunch of links to reliable sources of information for vaccines and COVID and stuff like that. So get your information from scientifically sound, medically accurate, reputable organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, St. Jude, Johns Hopkins, the Mayo Clinic, stuff like that. Like that's really important, guys. I also want to just reiterate the fact that when it comes to vaccinations and the health of yourself and your loved ones, um, that's between you and your doctor. Talk to your doctor when you have questions or concerns about vaccinations or things like that. Like that's what they're there to do. They're there to help keep you healthy and keep your kids healthy. So talk to them, rely on your healthcare provider to be uh, a source of information and guidance when it comes to making decisions surrounding your health or the health of your loved ones. So with that said, uh, you can find me at theautismdad.com. All of my social links are at the top of the page. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm not really on social media a whole lot at the moment, but uh, you guys can send me an email, whatever, through the blog, and I try to get back to everybody who who reaches out. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast and any one of your favorite podcasting apps. Really appreciate you hitting that subscribe button. And if you have the option to rate it, uh, please do so. I would really appreciate that as well. Uh, it really helps content creators to know what they're doing right and doing wrong. So thank you again for your time. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Stay safe and I will talk to you later. See you, bye. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strengthened connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U dot com, and be sure to use the code theautismdata at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.